Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Il n'y a plus rien à calculer. Il faut la mettre loin devant. Espérer que ça aboutisse à un quatrième but. Zinchenko en sortie par la tête de Bell. White, le de garde. Zinchenko, alors que le traditionnel est maintenant dépassé. De garde, la tête Et la fégute C'est Declan Rice Declan Rice Qui donne le sourire à Arsenal Qui arrache la victoire sur le gong Arsenal Qui est arrivé en fin De garde, la tête Et la fégute C'est Declan Rice La tête La tête Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra. As always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, goodly morning to you. Goodly morning, Andrew. However, Andrew, I'm cross. <laughs> Why are you cross? I'm about? so cross. Why? We should be reveling in in late great Declan Rice flavored drama, but but this morning. You're... Oh, we will. Don't worry about that. Okay. We will. Okay, go on then. But I'm going to tell you why I'm cross. I've just come off the phone with my. Uh, my uh, lovely employers at The Athletic. Okay. And in the wake of Arsenal's thrilling 4-3 victory over Luton, I was asked this morning if perhaps uh, this game last night is proof of why Arsenal won't win the title. (laughs) And I I am so cross. (laughs) I am so cross, Andrew. It's such... Bollocks. Arsenal obliterated Luton last night. They smashed them. And I'm sorry to say the goalie chucked two in and it gave the illusion of a a close game. But everything underlying is trending so positively. Listen, if that article ever comes out, it won't have my name underneath it. I'll tell you that. (laughs) What's the the one that they do when a film director... Uh, decides that he he can no longer stand over the release of a film that he has made. Is it um, Alan Smithy? So if you see a film directed by Alan Smithy, it means that the original director has said, take my fucking name off this before you release it. If Alan Smithy... <laughs> not not the one that scored a very good goal for us yeah, <laughs> at Anfield in If comes out by Alan Smithy, you'll all know what's gone on here. Oh, I just like... It, it's so... Shit, isn't it? That like something positive happens and in football, there's always this temptation or this tendency to undercut it, you know, to try and be clever. But the clever thing to do is look at these underlying numbers. As I said, Arsenal battered Luton. Give me some of their numbers then. Come on. 
Number well, me up. I mean, I'll show you. Uh, the, I mean, listen, I know people. people's mileage varies on the degree to which they mm-hmm. accept XG, but the XG philosophy has this game at 0.67 XG for Luton, from which they somehow scored three goals. 2.72 XG for Arsenal. I think, you know, I was just chatting to Adrian Clark and he said Luton had seven touches in the Arsenal penalty box. Gabriel Jesus had 14 they mentioned that on on TV here last night on Premier Sports somewhere you know towards the uh, middle to end of the second half and said Luton have only had six touches in the Arsenal box and somehow they've scored three goals. Yeah, um, and listen, if Arsenal had not won this game, it uh, it would have been a miscarriage of justice, <laughs> and it would have been you know the fault of some individual errors, mm-hmm. and it would have been insane. But, you know, everyone's going, oh, crazy, they won it 4-3. The crazy thing is that it was ever 3-3. That is the crazy thing about this game. And Arsenal might go to Villa Park and lose this weekend. They might go to Anfield and lose, you know, just before Christmas. There, there are difficult games to come. Mm. But to look at this game and say, that's why they won't win the league... I don't think I don't think it's there. I honestly don't. Is 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 it the fact that we did concede three against, with all due respect, a team like Luton who are down near the bottom of the table? Because uh, the other thing they were talking about last night was um, pre-game how good Arsenal were from set pieces defensively. They don't yeah. concede from set pieces. That was part of the uh, pre-game discussion. And then, of course, we concede two goals from set pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but listen. Mistakes happen, and a lot of people are sort of floating stats about, oh, Arsenal, they've conceded a lot of goals from individual errors. Yeah, because that's the only way you can score against this Arsenal team. Mm. You can't play through them. You can't play through them. If you're gonna, if they give up anything, it's because, you know, the goalie drops one or a defender misplaces a pass because of the risk-reward of, you know, the mm. way they try to play. But... All the trends are so positive. Arsenal are scoring goals. They're now really making chances. You know, the defence in open play are giving away absolutely nothing. I just think that because it's Arsenal, because we've got a history of being a flakier team, that I think at the first sign, everyone is trying to find a reason that we're not good enough. We are good enough. This Arsenal team is good enough to win this league. It doesn't mean it will, but it is good enough. I'm sure of it. I've watched them all the time. Mm. I, I'm so sure. And I swear, I, I, listen, I, I, I know that people will think, I was just uh, still hung over from the FSAs the other day. <laughs> and to an extent, they'd be right. I'd had two late nights back to back. But, and two celebratory nights as well. But I, I really feel strongly about this, that just because the scoreline was close, we have to be better than to sort of fall into nar- old narratives about this club and this team. We have to look at the hard facts. We have to look at the way the team play, what's actually happening on the pitch. And I think, but for David Raya having a, a big off night, by his own standards last night, this would have been a really comprehensive victory. Mm. And obviously, if he does that every week, it's a problem. But if you look at the last month, he hasn't done that every week. 
I mean, I think that's kind of what's fascinating about this game and in the context of this season is that, you know, the, the buzzword has been control all the way through Arsenal, yeah. you know, control games, maybe at the expense of some attacking fluency and all the rest. But um, what this demonstrated to me last night is that for all the focus that you might have on that, there are going to be games where football is just chaotic and random and weird things can happen. And you can find yourself 3-2 down, having gone 2-1 up just before the break, you know, at a perfect time. People talk all the time, but, you know, score just before the break. That'll put the, you know, the heartbreakers on the uh, on the opposition. It's the best time to score. They came out and they scored two goals uh, fairly quickly in the second half. And I don't think we were great. And I think there were moments in this game where, you know, we didn't cover ourselves with glory which hasn't been the case for for much of this season. But there is, at the very heart of this game, uh, a sort of random chaos that can emerge, which is why, basically, we all love it. And you kind of have to unpack how that happened. Uh, As you say, the underlying numbers from an Arsenal perspective were good. I think we had 23 shots in this game, nine shots on target. Um, Raya was poor for two of the goals. Um, but it is interesting to try and get to the heart of, of why a night like that can happen. And if it does happen, what is your ability as a football team to, to adjust, to cope and to dig something out? And I think what we've seen here far beyond any evidence that Arsenal might not win the league is perhaps more evidence that Arsenal can, because in periods or, or or games where there is some adversity, there is a character and a, re- a resilience to the way that we uh, approach not just the 90 minutes, but the 94 minutes or the 96 minutes or the 98 minutes or however many minutes it is that we have this ability to keep going, which is not a fluke when it happens with the frequency with uh, with which it does, right? You could say, on the one hand, maybe it will be better if you weren't always looking for late goals or, or looking for late goals as often as you do, but your ability to get those late goals is an invaluable part of, of the armory of this team. Andrew, the, the three teams who've won the most points in the last 15 minutes of games this season are Liverpool, Arsenal and Manchester City. <laughs> in that order. Right? This is what good teams do. Yes. They win games late on. They they play until the last second. The fact that Arsenal are now doing that consistently is not a reason that they may not win the league. It is a reason that mm-hmm. they could. Yeah. I, I, I'm so convinced of it. And you're, you're right that football is pretty random. And the hardest thing as a coach or as a manager is accepting that for all the work you put in, something quite mad can happen. And there are all these individual factors like officiating, like a crowd, like a player's own individual's performance or psychology that can have huge Mm. swings on games, seasons. So you have to look past that. You have to look at principles of play. You have to look at things like the underlying numbers. Are your team in the face of the inevitable chaos that you encounter in the Premier League? Are your team going about things the right way? Mm. And Arsenal are absolutely 
doing that. And I think they showed that with that winner in stoppage time. You know, those are the moments where you're most tested, where your mind and body is most fatigued, where the game plan plan can go out the window, where players can lose patience, where they can get desperate. And Arsenal were never desperate. They were always deliberate, even down to the moment where Zinchenko has the ball and lays it back to Odegaard rather than just chucking it in. Exactly. Yeah, I was waiting for Zinchenko to make the cross. Another pass gives you a better angle to get the ball into the box, and that is part of how Arsenal play and how they try and build up and how they uh, try and make chances. You know, I I completely agree with you on this. Um, Anyway, I, I just had to get it off my chest because I feel like... And you know where it comes from? It comes from the celebrations. I honestly think that people look at the emotion and they say, well, you know, Arsenal might boil over. You know what they're like. And as soon as we lose a game, everyone will jump on it. Everyone Mm. will say, look how they celebrated when they beat Luton. And I think it's, I think it's such bad analysis. (laughs) I I agree. It's bollocks. It is bollocks because what are you supposed to do when you score in the 97th minute to win a game 4-3, when it looks like you're about to drop points? You know, if you're a team that is absolutely driven, if your team is full of players who have ambition to win, and winning a title obviously is is the, the key ambition, but winning every game is your sort of bread and butter, right? If your bread and butter is important to you, you're going to celebrate those moments in the way that Arsenal do. You know, I don't know any team in the world from fucking Sunday League upwards who wouldn't celebrate in that way if they scored a goal in that context, regardless of whether it was against the team down the bottom of the table, regardless of uh, whether it was a, a top-of-the-table clash, whatever it is. To score a goal in ninety the 97th minute with basically the last kick or head of the game to win a game 4-3, there is not a team in the world that wouldn't celebrate the way Arsenal did. So it's just, it's lazy to sort of single out Arsenal as somehow different from every other football team or every other bunch of football players that exist the world over. Oh, I just had to anyway, get that off my chest. That's fine. I, it, it's, I, it, it's the sort of trampling of joy that I really can't abide, you mm. know. And I think, I, I do feel like we... That Arsenal do carry this kind of baggage, and I think you know, understandably, given last season and you know the way we collapsed, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people's preconceptions were kind of proved correct. But I do think that this Arsenal this season is a different beast, and uh, I don't know if it will be enough, but I'm not seeing anything really right now that makes me think they can't do it. Well, let's go back to the the start of this one then and try and uh, get to the the heart of what happened. Yeah. It was a fairly sloppy, scrappy game, I thought, in the first half. Luton were very, very much up for it. There was, you know, an element of they're sort of like orange stoke in my mind. You know, that's sort of. I actually called them stoke by mistake in a conversation earlier today. There was that, though. You're like the first well, couple of minutes, a guy goes through the back of Martinelli. And that's deliberate. You know, as a yeah. centre half, 
you leave a bit on a winger or, or a forward early on and it looked like a very painful one for, for Martinelli. Saka was fouled. You know, and, and look, people can take exception to that and I don't like seeing our players being kicked, but I also think that when you are a team like Arsenal, when perhaps there is an element of you being able to take advantage of being more physical against Arsenal than you can be against other teams... Right, I think that's another part of the perception that we have to live with. It's part of the challenge that we have as a as a club and as a team that I do think our players maybe get uh, don't quite get the same protection as other players or as other teams. So if you're Luton and you know it's going to be a difficult game, I understand why they played that way. They're a bottom of the table, lower table team, and it's going to be very tough for them. So that was something we had to deal with. But it was it was kind of scrappy. It was kind of sloppy. The first goal that we scored came from an overhit pass by a Luton player back to his goalkeeper. We took the quick throw in, sack it in the box, and, and Martinelli scored. Um I mean, smart, quick thinking from Bakayo Saka and, and from Martinelli to, to finish the way he did, but it came from a mistake. Mm-hmm. Similarly, the first goal that we conceded came from a mistake where I think Gabriel Jesus is more than capable, as he showed on numerous occasions in this game, his ability to receive the ball with his back to goal under huge pressure from defenders or center halves behind him, you know, we know he can do that. This time, his touch got away from him. Luton came forward, win a corner, and then they score the header. Mistake. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of sloppiness and scrappiness characterized most of the first half for me. Yeah, I, I, I take your point. I mean, it's sort of something I need to understand better about mistakes because... I kind of feel like what goals are scored without them. Um, yeah, it's true. Yeah, like beyond something unbelievably spectacular or, or um, you know, I mean, yeah, I'd say team. Arsenal's uh, second goal was like a thing of beauty, right? And I suppose you would say that was without without errors. But yeah. you might look at it and say, well, two centre-halves went with Kai Havertz when they didn't need to. or Maybe Wilshire's goal against um, Norwich. Yeah. You know, that's the kind <laughs> yeah. of thing where you look at it and you go, that is entirely down to the brilliance of the play of Arsenal. And there isn't really, you know, much that Norwich did wrong in that situation. You know, they were just pulled apart by brilliance. Whereas I do think most goals have an element of a mistake in them. Yeah, as, especially when... Uh, as I said earlier, you know, you're quite a structured team. But yeah, I agree that there was sort of um, some some glaring errors in the first half. I mean, the first Luton goal was, I think, really quick thing from us, but a, a disaster for them. Um, you mentioned the Jesus giveaway on the equaliser, but I think the, the marking at the corner mm-hmm. wasn't particularly good either. Yep. For me, Gabriel Martinelli, I think, was a bit of fault. Let the guy kind of run off him. Yeah. Um, it's a very good header once he gets there, to be fair to him. Um, yeah, I thought our second goal was excellent. Agree. Br- brilliant play from Saka to, to find Ben White and a, just a beautiful, beautiful cross. Havertz makes the run to the near post and Jesus is left free to nod it home. So there was a sort of a bit of everything to it, really. I mean, sort of on the theme of my earlier uh, sort of a, argument, I do think that their goal 
kind of came out of nothing. You know, for all the kind of cup tie atmosphere, for all that the crowd were up for it and the players were sort of trying to show some physicality, they didn't amount, that didn't amount to a great deal of goal threat. No, it didn't. It didn't. But, you know, set pieces are, are always dangerous. And yeah. I, I, I found Luton's approach quite interesting. I don't know what you thought. You were in the ground and, um, you know, they did push high and they did press high. Mm-hmm. And I, I noticed quite often that the trigger for their press was Saliba playing the ball to Gabriel. Yes, for sure. Which was which was interesting. And... You know, I was looking at the way they were chasing and the way they were running, and I was thinking, like, are they going to tire themselves out here? But they obviously had a plan because I think maybe just before or after, I can't remember it was just before or just after the third Luton goal, they changed their entire front line. So it mm. struck me that the the way that they wanted to put a bit of pressure on Arsenal at the back again, using that pass from Saliba to Gabriel as the trigger, was very much um, you know part of their plan because they knew that uh, on the hour mark, they were going to replace their entire front three and introduce completely fresh legs. Mm, yeah, I think I was the same, kind of expecting them to tire, but maybe that's something a little bit of the past. You know, in, in the five subs era, you can probably preserve those energy levels mm. for much longer than you ever could before. Um I agree that they targeted Gabriel a little bit and it worked here and there. You know, there were one or two times where he overhit a pass under a bit of pressure. Um, But on the other side of the coin, I thought that he, he really responded well to the kind of physical dimension of Luton's play and no surprise there. I mean, I think he just relishes those Mm. sorts of battles. Um, And there were times that it had a, a cup tie feeling to it. And, when I looked at him, I thought he looks at home in that sort of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he did take one absolute clattering in the in the first half where he cleared the ball. Your man just kind of came right through and followed through or left a bit on him, you know? I don't know if the guy got booked for that or not. Probably not because uh, he wasn't Gabriel Jesus making his his first foul. But, yeah, I mean, that, that sort of physical aspect of the game was um, – was part of what Luton were going to do, but 2-1 up at halftime. And I thought, okay, there are elements of that first half that Mikel Arteta will not have liked at all. This gives him a chance to address that. But Luton were very, very bright in the opening part of the, the second half. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the, uh, the goal, obviously. Uh, another corner. Um I don't think there was any big mistake or anything leading to this corner, but this was the first David Raya moment, I guess, where he came, didn't get there. I mean, Declan Rice is grappling with the guy who who scored the goal. It's, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other, I guess. He's out jumped, but if Raya comes, he's got to get there. Simple as that. Yeah, I think so. It's almost like he doesn't have the full 360 picture, you know, Mm. the way he goes for the ball. It sort of it seems to suggest he doesn't really know that man is is coming and maybe you know Declan Rice needs to do better there. Obviously he redeemed himself later in the game, um, but it's a it's a bad mistake. It's a bad mistake. Um, I don't think there's much more you can say about it. No, really. not really. It's a bad look for the goalkeeper, as is the third goal. Although I do think you have to uh, look at Ben White a bit for this one and. 
he got done a little bit too easily by Ross Barkley. You know, if he's getting done there by a tricky winger or whatever, maybe you can understand it a little more, but I don't think he gets close enough. Uh, it's too easy for Barkley to get the shot away. But for, you know, Shea Given was on Premier Sports last night talking about that moment, and he said that what Raya tried to do there is basically the most difficult thing that he could have done in that moment was to try and get down and save that shot with his arms and basically dived over the ball where maybe you can use your feet. Um, yeah. But So I don't know if that's like a consequence of, of coaching, if that's the way that they're coached, that when things happen in that moment, that that is his first instinct to get down, to try and make the save with his body. Because I guess um, if you do get down, there's more of your body to get in the way of the ball than your foot. But given how close he was and and um, and all the rest, it's another one that just does not look good for Raya. No, I, I think those shots that go very close to the body are a little bit trickier to deal with than they look in some respects. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, if he'd gone from more of a barrier approach with his body and using his feet, you know, I'm not a goalkeeping expert, but I think that would that seemingly would have suited better. And I'm not surprised that Shea Given suggested it. Um, you know, it, it was a a bad little period in the game for, for David Raya, um, and I'm sure you know there'll be we'll we'll have to questions and things like that about his performance. Mm. Um, but when you have a player who makes errors, high-profile high mistakes, what you want is for their teammates to bail them out. Yeah. And Arsenal did that last night for David. They did, for sure. He should be sending a very, very nice gift basket to you know, Gabriel Jesus, Kai Havertz, Declan Rice in particular, obviously, uh, for getting that winner uh, because they did get him out of jail to an extent not the jail of twitter discussion unfortunately uh, for him but uh, you know the one in which we actually uh, drop points but i think another interesting part of this is how quickly arsenal responded to going behind yeah that maybe if it's 5 minutes or 10 minutes without coming back into it it starts to get a bit more nervous, a bit more hairy. But within, what is it, two minutes, three minutes, uh, Kai Havertz scores again. And nice Indeed. nice work nice work from Gabriel Jesus. I think Saka just sort of hooks the ball forward. And when we talk about Jesus being able to hold off defenders, he does that very well. Havertz getting into the box the way he does. It could be a confidence thing or all the rest, but there's there, there, there appears to be more... Uh, intent to his game on and off the ball. There were moments last night where I thought he was really good in possession and drove forward and broke through some tackles, which we haven't seen a lot of. But that intent to get in the box, it was quite similar to his goal against Lons, wasn't it? That yeah. he arrives in the box and he just pokes it home from close range. But it's a good run. He he anticipates the possibility of Jesus being able to hold off the defender and play the right pass. He does, and that little toe-poke finish is becoming uh, a bit of a trademark. It's interesting as well to see the roles reversed from what you might expect, you know, against both Lons and last night. Jesus is playing the part of the the target man, almost, and Havertz is the runner off him. Uh, The kind of big man, little man strike partnership is inverted in those instances. Listen, I I thought Jesus was brilliant last night, Mm -hmm. and this was... uh, 
maybe his best contribution of the night. I know obviously he scored, but this was just a fantastic piece of, piece of centre-forward play. And Havertz's movement in the box does, you know, give us another weapon. I, I think Trossard, who obviously came on uh, shortly afterwards, I think his movement in, into the box as well is another level of threat. Um, and on another night, I think if his touch had been slightly more secure, he might have come out of this game with a, a goal or a big contribution. So, I, yeah, really, really pleased for Kai. And I think you might have been alluding to this earlier, but there was one moment in the second half where he kind of took the ball on the halfway line and drove forward, Yeah, you know, left a couple of defenders in his wake. And my eyes widened watching that. I was like, well, that's a, a dimension to this player I don't think we've seen yet. Yeah, yeah. And it's good and it's encouraging that that it's happening and that these contributions are, are, are you know becoming positive. I thought as well, sort of interesting aspect of what we were doing was the fact that you talked about them inverting the sort of big man, little man mm-hmm. role, but quite often Jesus was playing in and around that left eight position with, with Havertz as a kind of target man up front. Yeah. Um, Mikhail listens to the ask cast. Clearly, you know. clearly. Um, Must so. be the situation. <laughs> but that, you know, that was interesting and an interesting aspect to our play. And, and look, it makes sense uh, to an extent as well. If you're going to play some long balls, which we did quite a lot yesterday, Having, you know, a six foot four guy as as the focal point in those moments makes sense. Even if Jesus, as we've seen and saw in this game, can uh, be really really effective, um, you know, when taking in high balls or long balls and and holding off defenders, he's just so strong and so skillful. Um, you know, I, I agree with you. I thought he was really really excellent last night. So. 3-3 three, three and Wolves met, or Wolves, Luton made their three changes. They took their front three off, put an entirely new front three on. But Arsenal made changes as well. Trossard came on for Martinelli, who I think was a, maybe a little bit quiet after that kick in the back. And mm-hmm. They're very sore, those ones. Very, yeah, very really, sore. really, uh, yeah, really painful. They can be. Um, but Zinchenko came on at left back for Kivior, who, you know, I think had done fine. But I texted you maybe halfway through the first half and said, I do wonder if this is a Zinchenko game. Now, there might have been physical reasons as to why he didn't start. You know, we know that... Um, He's too small. <laughs> we know, though, that he has he has suffered some injuries. So there might have been a bit of load management going on there in that decision, right? And also, when you need to give players minutes, like we did against Sheffield United... Kivior coming in to the team seems like a completely reasonable thing to do, you know? But it was noticeable, wasn't it, that as soon as Zinchenko came on, and Game State may have played a part in this, Luton at 3-3 probably felt, right, okay, we better dig in here. Maybe we can get another set piece. Maybe we can cause them a problem there. But I think naturally they they sat deeper. But as soon as Zinchenko came on, our possession of the the ball went up from something like 50% to 75%. Mm. And the pressure grew and grew and grew on, on Luton where we played the game. You know, they had to sit deeper and deeper. We played more and more of it in their half. I'm not saying it's all down to Zinchenko because I also think Martin Odegaard in this period of the game really grew into it and became very influential. Um, But those changes helped Arsenal. I know Trossard had a couple of chances that he maybe didn't make the most of, but the two changes really worked. 
They did. I, I heard, and I'd need to verify it, but that Zinchenko made more passes on his time in the pitch than Kivio did in his hour or so, um, which tells you, A, about Zinchenko's role in build-up as opposed to Kivio's, but, but B, about the state of the game at that particular time. It almost became a different game and one maybe that suited Zinchenko more. Yeah. I, I, I would have started him if he was ready in this game. I thought this was always going to be a, a Zinchenko match. I wonder... Was Kivior selected in part to give Arsenal that extra height at set pieces? Uh, if so, that didn't no, work it didn't out particularly work. well. Yeah, but listen, what a luxury, what a position to be in to be able to bring on a player of Zinchenko's quality mm -hmm. uh, in that final twenty minutes, half an hour, where he's fresh, where you know he can really dictate the play and help Arsenal turn the screw. Um, and I thought Trossard played his part as well, as I said, in in that final period. Yeah, I think we had 11 shots in, in, wow. that, in that period of the game after we made those substitutions. There were a string of corners. Um, you know, Havertz had a header that was tipped over. Mm -hmm. Odegaard had a shot on target. Um, what else was there? I mean, there was just pressure building and building and building on, on Luton all the time. Yeah, well, there was a couple of VAR appeals as well. Well, there was a penalty that should have been given, of course. Um, there was a, the, the initial clash between uh, Saka and the defender. But, you know, for me, that's one of those where the ball is gone and I don't know where the defender is supposed to go. If exactly. You know what I mean. yeah, like, that's a collision. Yeah. I, I think that would have been very hard. Yeah, I would have been very unhappy if that had been given up the other end. But you know, when Gabriel is trying to get to the ball, the defender is pulling his arm and his shirt and literally pulls him out of the way of the ball. I cannot understand why that is not a penalty. I just don't I just don't get it. And I'm glad we don't have to do too much on officials and VAR and all the rest of it. But I just don't get why that is not a penalty. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, uh, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but I didn't think it was in real time and also on the first replay. And I, I only raised that. I, I do think it is one now. Mm. But I only raised that to try and... Um, suggest a possible rationale for why uh, the referee and the VAR may not have given it. And in my case, and listen, we're, I think we're all glad I'm not a VAR, but uh, in my case, I think my eye is so attuned to looking for a pull back that I didn't read or interpret he was being pulled forward. If you mm. see what I mean? Yeah, 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 I get you. Like I saw Gabriel's arm on the guy's chest and I almost interpreted it as, well, he's he's got the other guy's shirt and he's moving forward into him because in a penalty at box situation, you're, the attacking player is usually wanting to go forward. Um, of course, in this case, he's under the flight of the ball already mm. and the defender pulls him forward out of it. But I don't know. I'm not making excuses for them, but I wonder if, you know, they should be better than me at seeing it. I, I wonder I think if that might have been the reason. I think that's fair. They should be. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure they are, though. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. That is I the mean, problem. Guys, I'm very short-sighted. I mean, I can't see a thing. So, yeah, they, oh, they need to be a lot better than me. Dear, oh, dear. Well, look, it should have been a penalty. It wasn't. And, you know, you, you can feel sorry for yourself or you can keep going. And Arsenal kept going. I thought the, the moment... Um, 
where the referee was telling Luton, well, you're taking your time here, I'm going to add this on, mm. is quite funny in terms, of, in terms of what happened. But you know, when you look at the passage of play that leads to the goal, it's a long ball from David Raya. He just boots it towards halfway. Mm. Defender comes steaming in on, I think it's Trossard, goes right through the back of him, probably doesn't need to do that, but is, you know, thinking, well, look, I'll just give a free kick away on halfway and we can regroup, reorganize, and hopefully one of our central defenders will will head the ball away. From there, though, um, I was, I'll be honest with you, I was waiting for the referee to do that thing where you take the free kick and he blows for full time. Mm. And when the ball was headed out, I was waiting for him to blow for full time. But Ben White played it to Martin Odegaard, Martin Odegaard to Zinchenko, Zinchenko back to Odegaard, and this is a great header from Declan Rice. Like, he has to really work hard to get himself in front of the defender and angle that ball into the into the corner of the net. Um, unbelievable. Just un- uh, unbelievable. You know, the you're sort of thinking to yourself, there's no way we can do this again. Surely we can't do this again. And then we do it again. And it, you know what? It's fucking so much fun. You know, I'd ra- I'd rather we won the game 4-0. I really would. No two ways about it. Give me a 4-0 any day of the week. But there is just something so visceral and enjoyable about a goal which leaves the opposition players just in a heap on the ground, lying down, kneeling down, hunkered down. They absolutely know it's gone. They know there's no way that they can get back into this game. It's just that there is no feeling quite like it in football, you know, beyond, let's say, the final whistle in a final where you win the trophy or whatever it is. This must surely be the sort of pinnacle of football emotion is scoring a late goal and scoring a late goal in in circumstances where, you know, maybe you think it's not going to come. No, absolutely. And if anyone was going to do it, I know he's might seem an unconventional choice because he's playing at the base of midfield, but I think Declan Rice just has that presence and that knack of delivering indecisive moments. Not the first time this season either. No, and if Mikel Arteta is post-match press conferences to be believed, he doesn't think it will be the last. <laughs> um, yeah, just an incredible moment and to do it in front of the away fans as well. I saw the replays this morning of supporters kind of <laughs> spilling through the advertising. That recordings. was so good. You man, he's just banging the ground after falling through yeah. the advertising. I did enjoy the Luton fan as well, where they, they have this on the, uh, the TV footage where they're showing all the Arsenal fans celebrating. They're showing the, the, um, the Arsenal players. They show the bench, um, or the bench or the, or the, the, the bench area where Mikel Arteta and his staff are. And then it cuts to, uh, very quickly. It cuts to the Luton, stand and there's a guy just giving two fingers uh, straight into the camera they cut away very very quickly as well Well, let me tell you Luton is um, there's a lot of Arsenal support in that part of the world you know Mm. it's not too far from North London and I know for a fact there were quite a few Arsenal fans stowed away inside the Luton Oh, you must have seen the video no? I actually have it I've heard about it hang on hang on I have to I have to send you this right now. You need to look at this now because it's just okay. so good. Uh, let Are you me sending s- it to me on WhatsApp? I will send it to you on WhatsApp. Um, let me just find it. There's a tweet. Oh, no, it's been it's been taken uh, down. Hang on. No, no. 
There's a copyright strike on the initial tweet, but I know that I can find it. I think I saw it on Reddit. Yeah, here it is. Here it is. Uh, yeah, you could get a bit of the audio there. So, right, have a look at this. Okay, let's have a look. A guy just mouthing come silently, on, come on Arsenal to the camera. <laughs> As they're all singing, um, you know, uh, shouting Luton without the T. Yeah, fair play. I, I mean, yeah, as I was leaving the stadium last night, an Arsenal fan... Uh, called Richard came up and said hi and he'd been hiding in the Luton end. I think there were quite a few sort of undercover and how they kept their emotions to themselves in those far a few seconds, yeah. I don't know. I don't know either. It must be like on the one hand, a privilege uh, to be there and to witness it live. But at the same time, you're sort of like, Argh! you want to go mental, right? But Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Um, I mean, that's, I guess, how it is for me in the press box, you know, trying to keep it together, whereas uh, all I want to do is sort of run on the pitch and kiss Declan <laughs> Rice. <laughs> um, yeah, amazing stuff. Interesting point you made about a goalie going long. I actually had a look this morning, um, partly so we could talk about something to do with Avrai that wasn't the mistakes, but he, he goes long with a higher rate than, than Aaron Ramsdale by by some way, mm. by a good few percent. He does so more accurately, you know. And yeah. I, I think when we talk about goalkeepers playing out from the back, I think sometimes we assume, oh, it means playing short passes. But I think the long passes are as big a part of, of the goalkeeper's arsenal. I mean, no keeper goes long more frequently in the Premier League than Edison, which... You know, when you think about it and you think about the type of football sort of stereotypically associated with Man City, mm. it's quite striking. It is. I mean, Raya had a better pass uh, accuracy last night than Havertz. Wow. Than Gabriel Martinelli. Than wow. Leandro Trossard when he came on. And, and he played eight of 16, eight of his 16 long balls were accurate. There was one really good one as well, I remember, out to... Bukayo Saka, but obviously the the focus on on Raya this morning will be you know what he did and didn't do with his hands rather than what he can do uh, with his feet. Um, mm. I suppose something we do need to talk about is the fact that in the celebrations, Mikel Arteta was booked, and it was his third. I'm cross about that as well. I'm cross about that too because I don't really understand what he did based on what I've seen, whether there was something else, whether he, whether he was warned by the fourth official or something, I don't know, but I don't know what they expect managers to do in those circumstances. Like, are they supposed to just stand there and just go, yeah, nice one. That was good. I guess, uh, you know, you, you will celebrate. We know Arteta is a passionate guy. The other thing as well is that Kenilworth road is such a small stadium. Where are you supposed to go? Yeah. Like the two managers had to get out of the way of players taking throw-ins. Not just Mikel Arteta, I saw Rob Edwards do it as well, where, you know, the, there's no space on that touchline. Um, maybe by the letter of the law, he came out of his technical area and, and what have you, but it just seems like nonsense, doesn't it, to to sort of penalize a manager for celebrating his team scoring a goal. It means, of course, that he is now suspended for the Aston Villa game, which means he can be there, but he cannot be on the bench. Mm. He's got to be in the stands. Um, as he said last, I think if you'd asked Mikel Arteta, would you swap a yellow card uh, for a goal? He, he absolutely would have. 
but it's a bit frustrating all the same. Yeah, I think he's a marked man, really, Mikel. I think know, that's I think, true, yeah. I think, uh, you know, as soon as he made those comments at Newcastle, maybe even before that, to be honest, uh, he's someone who the, the referees are very aware of. And, um, yeah, I, let's just say I was very disappointed that he got that yellow card, but I wasn't particularly surprised. Um, well, look... I think, as I said, he would have swapped a yellow card for three points, and he got three points, and those are those are the uh, the very important things that we needed from from this week. Um, and it does give us, you know, a couple of days to sort of rest, recuperate, get some uh, battery recharging done. There are obviously some some injury issues to contend with. Not good news regarding Takahiro Tomiyasu. Um, we might have a question or two about that in part two, though. So maybe we'll. Uh, Maybe we'll wait for that, will we? Yeah, let's do that. All right. We will take a little break here. We'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the ArsCast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnerBlog and at ArsBlog. Also on the Discord, uh, the ArsBlog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an ArsBlog member on Patreon. James, you did mention the FSA Awards on Mm. Monday night, so I just want to take a moment to say thank you so much to everybody who took the time to vote for us to help us win that award. It's... uh, it's great to, to be up there and to win it against some very stiff and, and high-quality opposition. Um, we're all very proud uh, to have won the award, so just wanted to say thank you uh, to everybody who listens, of course, but everybody then who did take the time uh, to vote, and it was, uh, it was a good, fun night. It was. It was very good fun. Did you get that award through airport security? I did. You know what? I was waiting uh, when my bag went through because I brought a microphone with me, that nearly always means that your bag gets searched. They go, what's that? That's a bit weird looking thing. But the award, um, if people haven't seen it, is sort of like a long glass rectangular thing, which is extremely heavy. It's a deadly weapon. Basically. Like if you were to take that out. I'm surprised they let you take that on the plane, genuinely. Yeah, I put the bag through and it just came... I was waiting for it. You know that bit where it goes and it stops and it goes off to the right then and then sure. they go, whose bag is this? And you have to go, that's mine. That's but, mine. Yeah, but it's look. my weird stuff in there. It's at home now. It's on the shelf sitting there uh, very nicely. And, uh, you know, I was actually able to get home a bit early, which was good because I got to the airport quite early. I was able to change to an earlier flight. My My punishment for doing that, though, you know, we had a few drinks, it's fair to say. And it, it was quite a late night also. And I wasn't feeling 
<laughs> and they change me. I nearly always get like a window seat. You know, when I'm booking, I'll book a window seat because you can sort of just sort of rest against the window. This time I was in the middle. I was in the middle seat. And beside me when the, um, what do you call it? The drinks trolley or, or whatever, uh, the in-cabin flight service, whatever came through, the lady beside me who must have been 85 mm. if she was a day, she ordered a cup of extremely milky tea. Can you imagine what that smells like? Very milky mm. airplane tea. And then the uh, the cabin crew uh, lady said to her, would you like a snack or anything? And she went, I will, I'll have a packet of green Pringles. Ooh, and I yeah. really hate green Pringles. I hate the smell of them. I hate, uh, so I'm sitting there in the middle with milky tea smell and green Pringle smell wafting over me. And I'm just glad it was a fairly short flight. That's all I can yeah, say. Yeah, that would have been a struggle. That would have been a struggle. Yeah. But thank you to everyone who voted. We had a lovely time. We did. At the awards. We um, did. So, yeah. And, and Andrew now owns uh, one of the world's heaviest objects. <laughs> <laughs> it is extraordinarily heavy, I promise you. Uh, carrying my bag, a bit of a, a little bit of a challenge. All right, look, let's get on with some questions. Okay. I, I, can I go first? Because we have yeah. had a lot of questions about goalkeepers, a lot of mm. questions about David Raya, a lot of questions about Aaron Ramsdale. Should we keep Raya? Is it time to bring Ramsdale back? All of that kind of stuff. And those are sort of discussions that we have had um, I think quite a few times in the past. So I yeah. did want to go at it from a different perspective. And on Twitter, two pints, who's at Crendon Burr. I guess his name is Brendan Kerr. Anyway, he says, Goodly morning, chaps. With injuries to first team goalkeepers like Pope Allison and Sa over the last week, does it not seem great business to have two high quality goalkeepers? Interesting point. And something that you would only really test in the event of an injury. But injuries do happen. Just look at some of our competitors. Mm. Um, yes, I think that would be the positive side of it. But in a funny sort of way, I I've kind of said for a few weeks now that I'm not sure either David Ryer or, da or Aaron Rousdale being at the club is necessarily good for the other one. And if one was injured... <laughs> in a way they kind of wouldn't be present all the time. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a really, so I, I, it's such a complicated one. I, I do think Mikel Arteta has done an amazing job as Arsenal manager. I'm full of respect for him. I think when he looks back at how he's handled this one, particularly publicly with his comments, I think he will have some regret because I just feel that he, presumably by accident, kind of threw petrol on the fire of the debate with some of his comments about rotation and substituting goalkeepers and created all these narratives, or maybe not created, but fed all these narratives that have sort of persisted through the season. I think if he had his time again, I think he would say something rather different. Yeah, I agree with that. Completely agree with that because, you know, the idea 
that what he said when he brought Raya in was like, oh, we are on the verge of a new era in goalkeeping. Something yeah. nobody has ever seen before. And ultimately, it was just the same as what we saw before when when Aaron Ramsdale came in to replace Bernd Leno, for example. You know, it's exactly the same scenario. Albeit, you would say that it felt much more like Ramsdale was a bigger upgrade over Leno than, than Raya is over Ramsdale, you know? I mean, to what extent do you think some of the focus should be or might be on the goalkeeping coach in terms of how this situation has been managed? Really good question. Because I would say, from what I know of Iñaki Kanya, he is quite a divisive coach. You know, obviously David Raya has got a brilliant relationship with him. Um, but if you were to ask... Bern Leno, for example, what he thought of him, you'd probably get a very different answer. Mm. Um, I suppose what you need to look at is, do you feel goalkeepers improve significantly in their time here? Now, I think there is a case, you can make a case that they do. I mean, we saw Emi Martinez really blossom at a time when Inyaki was at the club. We saw Bern Leno have to perform some extraordinary feats in the Arsenal goal. Uh, Aaron Ramsdale, certainly when he first arrived, seemed to really kick on. Um, but then on the other side of the coin, some of the talent identification. I mean, Alex Runison was a very weird signing. Mm. I think on reflection, with a bit of distance from it, Matt Turner was a really weird signing. I agree. L- like, we talked Matt about Turner's that, yeah. a good goalkeeper, don't get me wrong, but a very odd signing for this Arsenal team who play with this philosophy. And he's not getting his game now for Nottingham Forest. He's lost his no, place he's lost there. His place, yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, look, I hope he gets it back. He's, he seems like a top guy yeah. and has been a top guy in the moments where I've interacted with him. But, you know, Inaki has big sway over the goalkeeping department and the goalkeeping decisions. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the sort of the jury's out to an extent. The Raya thing is tricky because his performances are always going to be viewed through the prism of Aaron Ramsdale and to an extent the affection in which Aaron Ramsdale was held by Arsenal fans. Um, even last night in the warm-up, the away fans were chanting for Aaron Ramsdale and and, and David's not got his chant yet. Mm. Um, but I, I think when Ramsdale made some errors against Brentford, I came on here and said, you know, goalkeepers make mistakes and goalkeepers have games like this and we need to try and be more mature in our analysis. And I think in the case of Raya, we have to look at the run of games since, I don't know, the Newcastle defeat and say that within that, I do think that this was anomalous in his recent form. I think he's looked more settled, more comfortable. I think he had a really bad night at Luton, but I I don't think the manager can get into the business of chopping and changing on the back of a bad night. I think I've spoken about the situation being unhealthy. I don't think that makes it much healthier. I agree. I, I do agree. Uh, I think, it, I think it's, you know, the, the problem is, is it's really difficult to bring Ramsdale back in without sort of setting a fire to that whole discussion about goalkeepers again. You know, I think if Raya has three or four games like this, one, we're going to drop points 
and two, he is going to have to make some kind of a change because you know if a player is completely out of form, uh, there's no there's no other option. But um, uh, listen, I, I know people are sort of tired of talking about this, and so I will try to keep it brief. But I, I really think uh, it could have been handled much better because we do have great depth in our goalkeepers, but we seem to have two goalkeepers that are kind of a little bit jittery and aware of the guy behind them. And also a goalkeeper in Aaron Ramsdale, who was voted the best of the Premier League last season, who I think his confidence has probably taken a pretty big whack. So even if you lose Raya, you're bringing in a guy who's coming in cold, not feeling on top of the world and might struggle to perform Mm. at the levels he previously hit. I think there was a way of doing this where both got game time without it being disruptive. I think you could easily have given one the games in Europe and won the games in the Premier League or given one, given Aaron the odd game in the Premier League here and there. And you would have two goalkeepers who might not be delighted with their position, but would at least feel like, you know, they, they still had a part to play. Yeah. And then you've got genuine depth and options. And I don't think we've got that really now. You know, like if yeah. we bring in the Aaron Ramsdale who played against Brentford, it doesn't feel like great depth necessarily. And I, I yeah, I, I do think that um, there was a way to make this work for us and give us genuine depth and options there. And we didn't choose that way. We chose the way of David Ryer as the number one and Aaron Ramsdale's probably going to have to leave. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, genuinely, I don't think the Ryer signing was about giving us depth. Exactly. I think it was exactly. about bringing in David Raya. Yeah. And that's exactly. it, you know, and and look, I understand what Arteta was trying to say and uh, and all the rest of it, but like you, I think he he got it wrong. He hasn't got a lot wrong in his time at this club, particularly in terms of what he said. You know, managers can always make mistakes, um as we know, team selections, certain signings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's uh, par for the course, but very rarely has Mikel Arteta said stuff that kind of comes back to haunt him. And I think this yeah. stuff does. So. Yeah, he made a rough zone back a little bit there. And like you say, he's not got a lot wrong and he's getting a lot right this season. But he is a young manager and, you know, it will probably prove to be a learning experience for him. That said, all that said... I, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that David Raya will play at Villa Park. And I think in the current context, I think that's the right thing to do. I don't think, I don't think you can drop a goalkeeper because he, because he has a howler of a game. I, I think then what have you done to that player? Yeah. 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 You know, where's his confidence going to go? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, the, the what, bigger, what do you think about that? I don't know. I, I just think the bigger question, you know, as we focus very heavily on Raya and Ramsdale, you're in the context of what we've seen over the last little while, you know, circumstances have changed. Like I thought Ramsdale was going to be our goalkeeper for the next four, five, six years. I really Mm. did. And then that's changed and Raya's come in and not been brilliant. Maybe the bigger question is, are either of these two guys the right guy to take this team to a, a different level or the right guy to be the goalkeeper for a team that has the ambitions that we have. Um, that, maybe of course, not, is Maybe a- not, but when you've spent 30 million on one and are planning to spend 30 million on the other one... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd like to hope so. 
And maybe that comes back to the coaching question. I Correct. don't know. Correct. All right. Let's um, let's go a different direction. It's uh, I think yeah. it's your question. Okay. Um, so. Uh, on this final word on the goalkeeper from Edward Power, who says, goalkeeping question, in actual words, how much do you admire the skill with which Raya's beard line is cut? Genuinely majestic. Um, well, he's no Andrew Allen, but, you know, I suppose it's quite good. <laughs> that might be what Arteta likes most about him. We know how immaculate mm. uh, Arteta is. I think he might recognise some of that in David Raya. What about this? Luke Webb. Recently, you and James discussed the siege mentality Arteta seems to have created post-Newcastle. Could Mikel being in the stands on Saturday be a good thing by adding to this? Or will we suffer without his presence on the touchline? Um, I mean, it might do. I don't know how much we'll suffer because he's not going to be on the touchline. He will have a, a, a seat in the stands. He can communicate with his bench, albeit not directly with the person who's in charge of the team. So he's got to sort of tell someone else to tell Albert Albert Steubenberg, you know, what to do. You do get a, a better view from up in the stand as well um, to watch a game rather than at, at pitch level. Uh, I know managers are very used to that and very accustomed to that, but you have a good view up there. So it might do. I, I'm Where I'm really curious about what happens is – with the other FA charge that is still hanging over Arteta, mm. that I feel like there must be some sort of um, negotiation going on, maybe, that we're not aware of between the club and the FA. Because if it was just going to be a fine, surely they would have fined him by now. They dealt with Roberto De Zerbi's comments, you know, within 10 days. The Newcastle game, as we mentioned the other day, is well over a month ago now, and they still haven't come to a decision about this. And I'm really curious to see what they do. Like, do they add another game on the touchline? Or might they look at this one and say, okay, he's got his touchline banned now for his three yellow cards. We can just sort of, you know, 25 grand fine and warning about your future conduct and all the rest of it. I feel like if they give Arteta another ban on top of this, that will really add to the siege mentality because, you know, I don't think what he said and what he has done merits that kind of punishment. Yeah, I wonder if this ban gives them sort of an out, you know? Yeah. Um, kind of suits everyone to a certain extent. But I do think it might add a little bit to that feeling of siege mentality. I mean, if you look at our results since the Newcastle game, we've been on quite the run. Mm. Uh, it's been a tremendous response and it, it does appear to have galvanised something. I mean, it's impossible not to look at other factors as well, like player availability, you know, Gabriel Jesus coming back into the side. Lots of things have conspired. Kai Havertz hitting some form. Um, but yeah, I think that's as a manager, that's what you've got to try and do. And Mick Arteta is allowed to do that team talk at Villa Park on mm. Saturday, and I'm sure that will be part of it. You know, the or the reintroduction or the the reavailability is that a word? It's not a word, but but it's not a question. And I couldn't really find a question about Jesus, but I'm I'm curious as to what you think about the fact that. You know, since he's come back from that hamstring injury, he started every game, mm. every single game. And I do think that there are things that he brings to our attack that 
Trossard and, and Eddie and Keddie don't. Uh, his influence on the way we've played in some of these games uh, is pretty obvious to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, he, he, he's an outstanding footballer. And I really thought that last night he was the total package. I thought he did a little bit of everything. Crucially, he scored as well. You know, I, I think it's really important that he does score goals. Uh, I think we need him to. And you you kind of, it's. I think he does the, all the rest of the stuff in every single game. You know, the hold-up play, the link play, the work, the pressing, the movement in behind. Uh, he's got so many strings to his bow. Uh, and if he can score goals consistently on top of that, mm. you know, there aren't many better forwards out there. We, we um, have, um, yeah, we've got a couple of associated questions, adjacent okay. questions to that one. So let me ask you a couple of those. First one comes from quiet bat people on the Discord. They're my favorite kind of bat people. They have the, been quite the, quiet because I'm not that aware of the bat people. The, yeah, the noisy ones could do with that. We knew our listenership was diverse, but <laughs> this is new levels. Quiet Bat People says, we're in the midst of a, quite a heavy fixture schedule. Last yeah. night, we were chasing a result towards the end of a tough and physical game, but only made two of five available substitutes. Is this a lack of faith in the bench options available or just a situation where our best team was on the pitch and Mikel Arteta correctly felt we were already playing well enough to grab the winner? Mm. And sort of in the context of Jesus starting every game, having gone away on international duty, having not really trained with Arsenal, but got his fitness there, played for Brazil, uh, and has now played in in all four of the games uh, since then. It is interesting, isn't it? I mean, I actually didn't notice that last night, that we only made the two changes. But I, I did think it's interesting that he's not deployed Eddie Nketiah, you know. I wasn't surprised. Right. Yeah, I, I wasn't massively surprised, but I still think it's interesting that you're in a game where mm. you're chasing a winning goal. You've got a player on your bench who is ostensibly a sort of penalty box striker and you choose not to go with him. Yeah, but who do you take off? I mean, last night, you're not taking off Havertz because he was good and threatening. Jesus was maybe our best player on the night. Um, you're, yeah, do, yeah. You, do you completely change the structure of... The team, like, do you take Ben Whitehall, for example, and put Eddie and Keddie on uh, and sort of do an Arsene Wenger and play all mm. the forwards? But, you know, as we talked about in the first half of the show, Arsenal stuck to their playing principles for the yeah. most part. And that, you know, a lot of that is design- is based around the structure of the team. Mikel's quite keen on structure, mm. it seems. Yes. Yeah, I, I, think it, I think it is just a case of having the best players on there, the right players on there, and actually... You know, as a manager, sometimes it's the right thing to do to stick rather than twist. And uh, Mikel got that call absolutely right. I mean, if you're looking to sacrifice a a defence-minded player for an attacker, it might have been Declan Rice. And look, he's the guy who popped up at the end Mm. with the winning goal. So, yeah, I think uh, an interesting call, but... One that the manager got spot on. Okay. Uh, The other question in this sort of ballpark was from Big TA78. And he says, our last 10 league goals is on the Discord as well. Our last 10 league goals were scored by nine different players. Our last 15 came from 12 players. Mm. Is this goal scoring sustainable over the full season compared to relying on a single 20 goal a season striker or more sustainable rather? And does it negate the need to buy such a striker in January or the summer? 
I think it is very sustainable. I think that's one of the positive things about it. I mean, what I would say is you can win the Premier League without that number nine. And I know because I watched Man City do it the year before they signed Haaland. They won the league without fielding a recognised centre-forward. Um, now, we have a centre-forward, but he's not a Haaland type in terms of being a, a predator and those high goal-scoring numbers. But if you spread the goals around enough, you can do it. It's just that City signing Haaland added another layer and dimension to their team. And I think that's the position Arsenal might be in next summer, where we have this very interesting multifaceted attack. We win a lot of games. The goals are shared around. But if you were to layer on top of that, if you were to you know, ice that cake with a 30-goal-a-season guy, you'd be in a really super strong position. Mm, that's true. What do you think? I, I, I think there's a real balance to be found between reliance on a a brilliant centre-forward who can get you those 25, 30 goals a season and everybody else. And I feel like there's a sort of shared responsibility aspect to this Mm. where Arteta is very keen, not because, look, strikers can have off days. And if you are, look, the the thing about Haaland is he's kind of a, a, a unicorn player because everybody knows what he is going to try and do but very few teams can really stop him. Yeah. You know, on a very basic level, you know, you see him evade his markers time and time again. Oh, look, there's the six foot five guy at the back post that, you know, you should have been marking, but he's so good and he can, he can move into those positions so well. Um, you know, would it be great to have another player who could score 20 goals in a season? Absolutely. Is it absolutely necessary if you have three or four players who can get 15 goals a season? Not sure. Um, and maybe it comes at the expense of of some of that that sort of overall team play, you know. Um, but I'm sure, like any manager, Mikel Arteta, if he could add another twenty goal player or twenty five goal player to his squad, he would do it. It's just about finding that player. You know, where do they come from? How much does that player cost? To what extent does that influence what else you can do or what you might need to do in the transfer market? Because strikers are expensive. Yeah, if this season tells us anything, I think it's that Arteta will always look for ways to evolve the team and move it forward. You know, as you said yourself, you thought Aaron Ramsdale would be in goal for the next four or five years. I'm sure lots of people thought, well, Thomas Partey is, you know, the holding midfield player. And and yet I think Declan Rice has absolutely made that position his own at this point in time. Um, There will... You know, who knows if Julian Timber had stayed fit, how many minutes, you know, a Ben White or a Tommy Asu might have played. I think Arteta will always be ruthless and forward thinking. I think it's in his nature. Yeah. And if that means adding a different type of striker, uh, he will do it. But at this point in time, this season, we are an infinitely better team with Gabriel Jesus in it with, than without. That, that goes without saying. For sure. Can I just say one thing, by the way, in the context of Mikel Arteta's booking, we mentioned Erling Haaland, and we know how frustrated yeah. he got at the end of the, the game against uh, Spurs the other day. I, I find it absurd that Mikel Arteta picked up a booking and a touchline ban for celebrating a goal when 
Holland's reaction, as understandable as it was because of what a terrible decision it was by the referee, for him to escape both a booking or any kind of FA charge for that doesn't make me feel like it's a, a level playing field. No, absolutely. I quite agree. Um what about this question? Uh, Wickel Arsenteta <laughs> says, Goodly morning, gents, and congratulations on the award. Thank you, Wickel. Um, with Tommy injured, all matches will now be Zinni matches. How do we feel about that? I'm not sure they will all be Zinchenko matches. I think there might be some Kivior matches, genuinely. Do you? Yeah, I do. I, I, I mean, look, I thought he was fine yesterday. He didn't give us the, the the sort of control that Zinchenko gives us in midfield, which is why I said to you, like halfway through the first half, I think this is a Zinchenko game. Um, but I suppose if you are looking for somebody who is more analogous with with Tommy Asu at left back, it is Kivior, because he's got that central defensive instinct. He can play uh, naturally left footed. I think he's very tidy on the ball as well. Gives you more height. Gives you more presence in the in the penalty box. Um, you know, if if you'd ask me, you know, I think we said this the other day, like thinking about Anfield, do you want that to be Zinchenko or Tommy Asu? You absolutely want it to be Tommy Asu because of the the way he can defend. You know, maybe it is one of those where you 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 think you could potentially go with with Kivior. I, I I don't know. He is the only other option, but we are very very light at the back now, in the in the absence of Tommy Asu. And I wonder if something might happen in January because of that. Because, you know, we are we are not far away from having to have the C word conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I, you know, I I I'm sorry. Listen, I know you don't like Cedric, but there's no need to call him a C word, Andrew. Come on. <laughs> um Yeah, I mean even if Tommy Asu's fit in January, he goes away, right? With Japan. Yeah, I don't know. There's some talk that he could be gone for four to six weeks. So it might be a case. I mean, this happened, uh, Andrew Allen reminded me, of course, it happened just before the World Cup as well. He picked up an injury, if you remember, just before the World Cup uh, and, and you know played a bit there for um, for Japan. It's so important. If there's any chance they can get him out there for the games, they will, you know. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting one. I find Kivior... Slightly curious case. I'll, I'll explain my perspective on it. I know he's a good player. I know his track record. I know what he did in Italy. Mm. I know what he's done with Poland internationally. But I just feel like I've not quite seen it yet. But what 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 haven't you seen? Because when I look at him, I see like a player who is still maybe finding his feet a little bit at the club, yeah. and and you know maybe he's a little bit quiet, still relatively young, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I haven't looked at him and thought, right, he's got a long way to go to develop to become, you know, a player who can play regularly for us. I think there hasn't been anything particularly spectacular, but I think there's a sort of underlying, maybe I'm going to jinx the shit out of this guy now, but, you know, I think generally speaking, he has been very tidy. He's been very tidy. You know, he's, he's good on the ball. He defends well, decent in the air, doesn't look too flustered at any point. You know, 
I'm curious as to what you're yeah, not seeing. I, I don't disagree with any of that. I right. just, uh, to explain fully, there have been a couple of games where I've watched Give Your Play, so be that in preseason, or he came on the other day against Lanza, and, and um, I've sort of thought, yeah, it's fine. It's sort of tidy, you know, nothing to write home about. And then social media being what it is, I log into Twitter or whatever that night, and there's a load of tweets being like, that Kiwi or Cameo fire emoji. And right. like, you know, doing compilation clips of him playing 15-yard passes into midfield. And I'm like, is it just that he's shiny new toy? Like, I, like he's been fine. He's been totally, yeah. to, to my eyes, to my eyes, he's been fine. I think that's a good baseline, though, for a player who, you know, was brought in as a, a reserve, as a backup. Yeah. I think if that's his baseline, it, it does suggest to me anyway that he can he can step up when needed. But like... Doesn't everybody get a fire compilation after every game? I think now? that I think is just what it is. Think yeah, I it. think that is what it is. I, to be fair, he did have some shaky moments last season. Um, you know, at St James's Park, there were, he had a couple of nervy moments. There was that odd moment in Europe where he just didn't jump at a corner. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he came on at Anfield in pretty trying circumstances. I felt for him a bit in that situation because we were really up against it at that point in time. But I think of late, he has looked more settled. I think he will get games at left-back in this period. Whether or not Anfield is one of them, whether or not Villa Park yeah. the weekend is one of them, I don't know. But, yeah, I think he will. And listen, I, I don't think it was necessarily the right pick yesterday from a tactical perspective. I, I would have gone for Sinchenko. Yeah, me too. But I, I think it was good to give him the game and get him involved and make him feel part of the group and get some of that rust off him because I think we're going to need him. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we have a question here from Charlie Lane on Twitter. Is that Charlie underscore S underscore Lane? He says, is it time to give Rule Walters a go in the PSV game at right back? It looks like he could be needed in the league soon. And, you know, I joke about the C word, but I'm still, I'm genuinely quite frightened by that. Uh, that prospect, to be honest, and I wonder if, in a in a set of circumstances where we don't have Tommy Asu for a few weeks, Timber is still out. We've only got one right back. Why, if it might be useful to see whether or not someone like Rule Walters, you know, who's still very young, and probably has a lot to learn and all the rest of it, but you know. Do you give him a game to see, not quite if he can sink or swim, but just to sort of properly assess where he might be in terms of his readiness for for greater or more frequent involvement because an injury crisis um, demands it? Easy answer. Yes. Right. You give him the game. You give him the game in Holland. I think he's playing centre-back quite a lot for the under-19s, under-23s. I think you probably give him the game at right-back. He's played at right-back plenty in the past. I think it, it it can be a little bit more comfortable for an inexperienced player. A lot of centre-halves, I think, start their careers with the odd game here and there at right-back. Um, I think he's got the athleticism to do that job as well. And we, and we need players in that position. So, yeah, 100%. Uh, and I was I was almost disappointed when we drew Liverpool in the FA Cup because mm. I was looking at that third round at the start of January and thinking that's a good game for him, you know. And it may still be. It may be that Arteta. I, I don't I don't think he will, but it may be that he rotates and gives an opportunity. But we, let's find out what we've got, you know. Yeah. Rico Lewis was playing fullback for Man City 
at 17. Um, look, Rico Lewis is an exceptional player, but Arsenal think very highly of Real Walters. And mm. it's one of those situations where it's a case of if not now, when? You know? Well, that's it. That's it. And it does look like Tommy Asu is going to be out. He, I just seen he's posted on Instagram. He says, I'm sick of being an injured, but I mm. believe this is the opportunity to be much stronger. Um, it's really unfortunate because as we've spoken uh, about many times, he is that Swiss Army knife defender who can play anywhere across that back line who gives you depth you know, in all the key positions. So yeah, it is playing a, really well. It is a bit of a worry. I mean, do you think it might inform the January window? Because, you know, even with um, the potential return, for example, of Thomas Partey, he's going to go to AFCON. Uh, Tommy Asu is going to yeah. go to Asian Cup anyway. Timber probably still some months away from making his return. So... There is a, and actually Arteta referenced this the other day, I think. He referenced being quite light in defense and light at the back. So it would make sense if you are light and you're in a period of the season where you can't do anything in the transfer window to see if there is somebody at, at uh, academy level who can make the step. Definitely. In terms of the transfer market, I don't think it's straightforward because you, no. you, know, you, have, you have bought timber. And yeah, I... I don't know what the right move would be. The right move would be a player like Tommy Asu who's available on loan. Well, no, <laughs> Can we find luck. that in January? Good luck with that. Yeah. So, I mean, because if you think about it, on paper, I think we we have the numbers. They're just injured, aren't they? Or going yeah. away on international duty. I mean, how far are we from Declan Rice stepping in at the back? I mean or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean that's that's that is an option, isn't it? It is, yeah. You know, he can play at centre half. Uh you you would prefer for that not to be the case, but you know, it might be something that you need to do depending on who's available and how well we come through this next uh, run of fixtures and you know, fingers crossed people can stay uh, can stay fit. Yeah. Um what shall we do now? I had a few questions about uh, Declan Rice. Okay. Uh, what about this one from AK? AK on Twitter says, Goodly morning, gents. Hope the nerves have settled. At what point is it reasonable to ask, when will Rice be our captain? Yeah, there was another question about that as well uh, on the Discord. I think I had one here. Um, boom, boom, boom. It was a about basically, yeah, here it is from Lewis Letty. Goodly morning, gents. Due to the age profile, do you see Rice becoming Arsenal captain while Odegaard is at the club? And what was your question again? Yeah, it was something like, uh, when will Rice be our captain? I mean, I don't think he will while Odegaard is at the club. Like, what do you do? Take the captaincy away from Martin Odegaard? Mm, exactly. And I don't think Odegaard seems like the sort of person to to give it up. No, I don't think so, nor should he at this moment in time. You know, the quality of his performances and the way that, you know, he is a leader in his way on the pitch. I know he's not quite, um, you know, the typical shouty captain, but, you know, a, a very effective player. Uh, I think he's represented the club extremely well as captain on and off the pitch. He's a very smart guy, a very intelligent guy. He is... To a large extent, the manager's tactical eyes and ears on the pitch as well. Mm -hmm. So he plays a very important role in that regard. I mean, it, the question is like, 
would Declan Rice be unhappy if he wasn't captain of Arsenal? And I don't think that's really something we should worry about. I think he will be, and uh, you know, already is, somebody who is a leader at this football club. Whether he's got the armband or otherwise, it will not change his personality in terms of what he does on the pitch, how he approaches the game, you know, how he behaves in training, uh, his desire to influence the players around him and all the rest of it. Like, does Declan Rice need an armband to be a leader to uh, his teammates, do you think? I don't think so. No. And the best teams have more than one captain in them. Correct. Um, And I think in terms of like his personal brand and his own sense of accomplishment, I think Declan Rice is going to be the next England captain. And I think he could probably live with being vice captain at Arsenal and captain of his country. For sure. For sure. All right. Um, Yeah, over to you. I've got one more because we've got to get this out. Our old friend, the man from Eastlower, at Eastlower on Twitter, Mm -hmm. he said, some weeks ago, I bet my brother £10 that Havertz wouldn't score 10 goals this season. Shall I just eat my hat and hand over the readies now? (laughs) What's he on? Three now. No, four. Four. From a, you know, excluding the penalty, his open play goal distance must be like making Eddie and Keddy are furious. <laughs> well, Eddie scored a, a screamer from outside the box a few weeks yeah, ago. Yeah. So the world's turned upside down. Um, will he get to 10? Yeah, go on. Let's say he will. I think he will. If he keeps playing like this, like I think, you know, it's if fair we to- we keep playing like this as we well. We keep playing like this. But, you know, it's fair to say we, among many other people, had some questions about Havertz and whether or not he was going to, you know, integrate or click. I think he's beginning to click. You know, yeah. very, very good yesterday again, I thought. And, um, you know, hopefully that trajectory continues because, um, you know, like we like we said, when you spend that much money on a player, you kind of need it to work, you know? Yeah. And I think the most interesting thing about him is that he just adds a different dimension to the way we play. He gives us a, an alternative way of playing and, and, a, and another option. I mean, honestly, there were times last night I was looking – at this old, uh, you know, football league stadium and David Raya going long to Kai Havertz, Arsenal lining up in basically a 4-4-2. It all felt quite old school, mm. you know, but we couldn't really do that last season. Um, and it is an important weapon to have. So, yeah, I, I'm very pleased for him on a personal level. I, I'm sure he feels a lot better about life than he did a few weeks ago. And... I think it's really benefiting from an Arsenal perspective. We need, look, goals from midfield is something we need and he's now providing that. So I really hope it continues. And I'm sorry, Jim, I hope you're shelling out that 10 quid yeah. come the end of the season. 10 whole pounds. Yeah. I mean, he really uh, really put himself on the line there, didn't he? <laughs> anyway. How will, how will he ever recover from this? Yeah, yeah. And what, what will Jim's brother spend that fortune on? We must know. We'll find out maybe towards the end of the season when when that money has been handed over. Look, we had better leave it there. There are plenty of games going on. We can, thankfully, just sort of sit back, relax, and hope more Premier League mayhem unfolds. Uh, The league's been mad, hasn't it, the last few days, some of these games. It really has. It really has. I think it's sort of maybe the most mental season 
I can remember across mm. the board. Anyway, there's probably been more, but you know, my memory's not what it was. Uh, like I said, though, hopefully some of the other results go our way uh, over the next couple of days. We will have a full roundup of all the week's Premier League action for you over on Patreon on Friday morning in a bonus episode of The 30, given that there were bonus episodes uh, of the Premier League this week. Uh, we'll also look ahead to the game against Aston Villa on Friday afternoon in our preview podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash arsblog for now. Take it easy, and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.